Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative and innovation editor with Adweek Magazine. And with me, as always, is our co-host and social editor for Adweek, Kamiko McCoy. Kamiko, how are you doing? Hey, guys. I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for uh, anchoring the show. I've been away for the last uh, two episodes, and they were great episodes. I really enjoyed uh, catching back up on them. Uh, We looked back at Pride Month and had a great panel uh, to talk about the way that brands addressed LGBT. Uh, And we also looked at uh, women trailblazers and most powerful women in sports. Uh, issue that we had last week and a big event we had at Adweek. So uh, great job. If you if you miss those, be sure you go back and catch up on those episodes. They were yep. awesome. Please do it before the heat wave sets in. Yeah. Getting out of the summer funk. I feel like we're finally like gearing up. It, it, I live in Alabama where like everyone goes back to school at, right at the beginning of August and like I, like summer ends kind of early. And so I'm I'm like I'm ready. I'm ready for advertising to fire back up. Uh, <laughs> so we've also got back to talk about uh, you know, e-commerce in general, retail in general, but also Prime Day, how Prime Day went this year for Amazon, what we learned, how it went for Prime, you know Amazon's competitors. Lisa Lacey, our resident expert on all things retail and e-commerce. Lisa, thanks so much for making time for us. Well, thanks for having me back. Super special guest as well to talk about his cover story. We've got Adweek's own Ronan Shields, who covers the programmatic industry for us, along with many other aspects, and uh, and you know got a awesome sit down with Sir Martin Sorrell, uh, one of the most uh, you know I would say kind of best known. I used to always call him the most powerful man in advertising. Uh, I don't know, Ronan, is that even still an accurate uh, uh, description anymore? Uh- Thanks for having me on. Uh, Sir Martin Sorrell, um, he's so powerful, I wouldn't even want to say on that. <laughs> I, I do not want to comment because when you say his name, he can sense it and he will send he'll send the Death Eaters right to your house. Pretty much. Um, so we will be going into uh, Ronan's really fascinating interview with Martin Sorrell. Uh, but first, we are going to get to the most important news, which is the Cats trailer. All right, let's talk to Cats trailer. So just to recap, for those of you who avoided the internet for the better part of last week, uh, the trailer, a lot of trailers dropped. Like there was the, I guess, sequel slash reboot of Top Gun, 
Top Gun Maverick. And and at first I was like, oh, people are really talking about this trailer. And then like five minutes later, <laughs> the trailer for Cats comes out and no one was talking about Top Gun. <laughs> like, like literally at one point I saw that the, one of the trending, the biggest trending topics on Twitter was Goose. You know, just because of Top Gun, just because like Rip Goose. Uh, and then like, and then all of a sudden Cats came out and just everything else got buried. Uh, it, it, the Cats is like this CGI kind of modern interpretation of the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. Uh, Lisa, I'm just going to randomly put you on the spot. Did you watch the trailer and how did it affect you, uh, you know, emotionally and spiritually? <laughs> I did. Uh, and I actually saw Cats on Broadway maybe two years ago. And uh, it just it felt very dated. Like, I feel like musical theater has changed quite a lot since then. So uh, it wasn't wasn't necessarily the best show I've ever seen. Uh, and really, what believe it or not, I, I saw the the comparison to the Uncanny Valley that you made, and I you know I did a big piece on that last year, and so reached out to the smartest tech guy I know, and like I thought it was just that eerie feeling when it's people, where the lines blur between people and machines. Can it be people and, and animals? And he sent me a whole, there was a whole scientific paper written about like when the lines blur between people and animals and cats, I think maybe even specifically. And so I, I have not read that scientific paper yet, but <laughs> it is a it is a phenomenon. I'm so glad science is looking into this. <laughs> uh, Kamiko, uh, what did you think of the Cats trailer? <laughs> you know, first of all, I want to bash my Twitter's followers uh, or the people I follow on Twitter because I thought that we were better than that and I would not have to see that on my timeline. Lo and behold, I did several times. I was subjected to that content. Um, it was weird and it made me very uncomfortable. Um, but also, I mean... This wave of like remakes and redos is just so strange. Some of them are like absolutely like with the Lion King. I was super excited. Can't wait to drag one of my friends to go see that with me. But then it was like Lion King, Beyonce, Blue Ivy, Cats, and I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, I, the, my favorite comment that I saw on Twitter was uh, that somehow the 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 cat people look more naked than if they had just been naked. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like the best way to describe the really uncomfortable feeling of looking at at cats who like have breasts like like they are human anatomy <laughs> naked standing cats and your brain is just like no <laughs> no absolutely uh Jesus from Jesus and Marrow he tweeted about it too and he was just like okay so hear me out cats musical but they're bodega cats. And I was like, I like that. I like <laughs> uh, Ronan, any thoughts? Did you get to watch it? No, I didn't. I can't lie. Uh, I'm in the GDPR zone. So the internet is nothing but consent forms for me. So, <laughs> you know, that's, that's better. I would say, I would say you're better being sexually attracted to a consent form than, than dealing with the emotions that you might get from watching the cats trailer. So that that's for the best. No comment. Um, uh, it, it was something, but I, I, you know, there was a lot of debate about, is it still going to be a hit? And I don't know. I don't know is that a, an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical movie is ever going to be a huge home run hit uh, in terms of mega audiences. But I think the people who are into it will go see it. It's A lot of people are like, what were you expecting from Cats? I was like, well, that's not really the question. <laughs> the, the question is, what was I expecting to see on Al Gore's internet on a, you know, on a Thursday? It was not that. 
So it's never Just that. Yikes. <laughs> All right. That's it. That's our deep. Uh, I did do a, uh, I'm not even going to call it a review. I, I did write up a piece on the internet's reaction. And basically, I was just saying that, like, you know, it's nice to see the internet come together on something. <laughs> you know? Mutual hate. Yeah. It's a unifying, <laughs> just like, oh my God, what did we just see? It's like, it's like there was this time in college, this is a weird metaphor, but I had this crush on this woman who worked at a coffee shop and like I never got the guts to talk to her when I was like a freshman or a sophomore or whatever. And then one day we're both like sitting on these benches kind of across from each other in downtown. She was like taking a break from work and I was sitting across from her. And then like this this woman walks a dog by and the dog had no rear legs and, and they had made a little like wagon for it. You know, so that you could just, and it was just super cute. And this, they just, I had, at the time, I'd never seen anything like this. And just the squeaky little wheels of this, like, little dachshund with no back legs, like, walking by. And we both just kind of look at each other, like, after it goes. And then that was it. Just this, like, shared moment of, like, we were together for this experience. And then we never, (laughs) we never spoke. You know, that was Uh, it. Didn't I was hoping she became your wife. (laughs) And and that's how. We got now. Now that was it. That was literally the only interaction I ever had with. <laughs> so it was Prime Day, as we talked about. Two days, two days of Prime Day, and also a big legion of uh, of Prime stuff. Kamiko, did you did you buy anything? I did not, but I am obviously the minority here in this case. One, I do not live in an apartment building where I feel confident buying things online. You may get it, you may not. It's a coin toss. Um, So the better person to talk to here is Lisa Lacey, um, our Adweek's um, retail e-commerce reporter. But also I would like to refer to you as like our Amazon correspondent. (laughs) I'll take it. Did you buy anything on Prime Day? Uh, I did not. I thought about getting a curling iron. My curling iron broke Monday morning. And so I know. And so it was uh, three quarters of the way around my head too. So uh, great timing. (laughs) Uh, Later that day I was looking and the deal, it's, it's not a cheap curling iron, uh, but I get great ringlets, perfect ringlets. I love it. Uh, the deal was only 3% claimed, but what really annoyed me was when I added it to my cart, then this 15-minute timer started ticking down, and I just felt like there was no reason for that additional pressure, and I, I mean, I'll end up paying more for it for taking this stance, but it's a stance that felt... I, it was something I, I felt that I needed to do just to, you know, fight back against the uh, the unnecessary pressure because it wasn't 97% claimed. It was 3% claimed, and I just thought it was ridiculous. <laughs> so, no, nothing. I wonder, um, you've written countless pieces about Amazon Day, and one of the ones that I enjoyed was the Good, Bad, and the Ugly. If you guys have not checked that out, please do, um, where people bought an insurmountable amount of Crest whitening strips. <laughs> yeah, they kept bringing up Amazon, kept mentioning Crest 3D white strips. So I wonder if that was like part of their ad package. Do we, with they Amazon? just feel like we all just don't <laughs> have clean enough teeth. <laughs> well, no, they, they sold 150,000 Crest 3D white strips, but I feel like there were a number of announcements that they put out, and I feel like every single one mentioned these white strips. So Instant Pots are always popular in these Prime Day roundups, but this year the <laughs> the white strips <laughs> were, uh, <laughs> were got, got a lot of love. So um, – um, <clears throat> But I mean, I, it was a 
it was a unique Prime Day, I guess, to, to say the least. I mean, I, I feel like in terms of everything that Amazon wanted to accomplish, mm-hmm. it did. They're always very sort of uh, tight-lipped about specifics. And so I think Bezos said something like, you know, Prime members saved $100 million in the U.S., but I uh, don't really know how much they spent. They bought, I think, 175 million products, which is obviously a lot of stuff. I think Griner, actually, you <laughs> you contributed to that. Uh, hey, but, uh, hey, let's not let's not go dragging. <laughs> My, <laughs> um, now, let's see for for full transparency. I, I think what I ended up getting, um, and it was interesting shopping around. You know, Lisa talks about this a lot. That like Prime Day has turned into kind of the biggest competitive. Uh, shopping day or multiple days, I guess. Um, and that was what I really took advantage of is whenever I came across something, I'd just be like, all right, let's see if anybody's got it cheaper. Uh, and <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess to Amazon's credit, I never did. I, You know, I found there were a few instances where had the competitor, namely Target, had they offered in-store pickup, um, I would have done it. Uh, but they didn't on the products I was looking at, right? So in the end, it's like, well, I'm going to get it for the same price for the same free shipping from either Amazon or Target. I'll just go with Amazon because I'm already buying other stuff. You know, at that point, it becomes a convenience, I guess, issue, and you know that they'll deliver it uh, pretty quick. But, you know, as a consumer, I've get, that's what I kind of dig about Prime Day now is it's just like, oh, I may not buy this, but I'll, like, poke around and see if someone is trying to undercut them, which which is something that, that I believe you had listed, Lisa, right, as one of the ways, uh, you know, one of like maybe five ways I think you would detail that that other retailers can compete on Amazon's kind of seemingly like home turf. Yeah, I mean, I, BOPUS, I feel like maybe will be the at least the retail acronym of 2019. What, remind um, us, remind us what BOPUS buy online, is. Buy online, pick up in store. And I actually just got a study, I forget from from what agency, but uh, they uh, had Boris, which is buy online, return in store. And I feel like I like Boris even more, but I'm not sure that's going to take off uh, quite as much. But it's true. I mean, it, it, we are based in a city and we maybe kind of forget that the country is is like you, for example. It's very easy for you to go to your Target and pick up something there, whereas that's not necessarily something we might do. But, you know, uh, other retailers, Walmart, Target, et cetera, they do have stores and they, and they can offer a perk like that for all of the consumers who live close by. So that is one advantage that, that they do have over Amazon. Potentially. In addition to that, um, Amazon, they had uh, some other news come out, um, which you saw their mask slip just a little bit with the facade that they normally are pretty good about holding up. Can you talk about that a little bit? I can. I, I, I talk to Amazon, at least by email, probably every single day. And I feel like they're always very cool, calm and collected. It's very Until hard. people start striking. <laughs> well, and I don't even think the strike would have had much of an impact. I think it was only about 100 people. I talked to some analysts who said, you know, it's not hard to, for whatever orders, they weren't there for to just sort of root them from other facilities, that kind of a thing. So if these, if lawmakers and unions and, and other organizations hadn't sort of started lending their voices to the cause, I'm not sure it would have taken off as much. And mm-hmm. then in calling for the Department of Labor investigation, 
uh, I got some some downright snarky responses oh, to, sure. uh, to the people who are striking. You know that they just they're they're misinformed and uh, really kind of taking from I don't know if they're taking from Walmart's playbook or if Walmart took from them, but just like very similar answers earlier this year at the shareholder meeting. Bernie Sanders was there as well, calling on a on a living wage, and it's it's not exactly the same because Amazon workers are in warehouses, whereas the Walmart employees. Are in, in stores, but they all have very similar concerns. Right. And uh, so I just feel like they uh, it, it rattled them a bit, especially with this call for a Department of Labor investigation. And, you know, they keep inviting everyone to take tours uh, of their facilities. And you mentioned that, you know, they're safe enough for six-year-olds to tour. And uh, what else did they – oh, and I, I loved <laughs> at the end of the uh, – the response to Sanders, uh, it was something like, uh, you know, if you really care so much about the American worker, then maybe you should be fighting for a higher minimum wage, which is exactly what CEO Doug McMillan, the, the Walmart CEO, mm-hmm. said to them when uh, they were asking Walmart to raise the minimum wage. To be clear, Amazon does have a, a $15 minimum wage, which I think believe is unmatched in the industry, but um, they both sort of harp upon, like harp is maybe the wrong word, I'm sorry I said that, but uh, focus on, you know, all of these employee benefits that they have, and yet there are still a lot of concerns about workplace conditions and leave and I'm really excited, well not excited, no, kind of excited, who knows, to see kind of where this goes, because originally I remember hearing like rumbles and things of like workplace conditions, and then you hear some, a couple of politicians tack on top of it, and then there's a strike that happens. And, and then we've written about like pilots that are unsatisfied with the working conditions and like the amount of work that they have to do. And now you have like the EU involved. And I'm just I'm really, really intrigued to see where this is going to go and where Amazon is going to um, end up. But another thing that we should probably talk about is the stuff that they found themselves in a little bit of hot water here recently about the things that they sell online, mostly Nazi themed things. <laughs> Right. Um, so I don't. I've I've got something on this that'll come out hopefully in the not too distant future. But uh, this week in in Germany, there were some reports that came out that there's um, Nazi merchandise. That's I think it's from third party sellers on their uh, their platform in Germany. But uh, and they've had a statement about how they're going to investigate it, and they don't support national socialism or its glorification. But They've made some similar comments about merchandise in the U.S., and um, it's sort of unclear how – they say that they strictly enforce it, but I'm not – from what I have seen, I, I don't know. I mean, that's a whole other ball of wax, I guess, or a whole other can of worms, but – you, you, uh, you, think... uh, you gotta love 2019 <laughs> that, like, brands have to come out and explain that they do not support na- the National Socialist Party of Germany. <laughs> 2019 is a weird place, man. Yeah, it's it's a like, weird place. Well, we are against Nazis, so just to be clear. <laughs> yes, uh, but, you know, it's also uh, uh, what you sell versus what you say. There, so there's uh, there's a lot to dig into. Um, I, I'm curious, Ronan, while we've got you, uh, what is, what's Amazon's reputation uh, in Ireland and the UK, you know, how, just generally, how are they, how are they seen over there? Yeah. I mean, there, there's no particular um, sort of uh, ill feeling towards them. Obviously the EU is investigating them for certain things, but 
they probably don't view them any different than, say, uh, you know, Google, Facebook, Amazon. I think they're all of a uh, just seen of seen as being cut from the same cloth, really. Um, I mean, what they do provide is convenience, right? I mean, I bought a whole ton of things on Prime Day, and that's just what they do better than you know anybody else. They just provide you convenience and you know very good branding with. You know, Prime Day. Well, Lisa, what what do you think? Was there anything that surprised you this year in terms of how Amazon handled it or what they tried? I, I thought they, you know, we're really focusing on some of the more controversial aspects. I thought some of the kind of how they positioned it, the live streaming they did, and and kind of how they brought some new technology to it. I, th- I thought it was pretty interesting. Uh, and and generally, it seemed stable. I didn't see as many reports of Amazon dogs this year. <laughs> <laughs> like crashed 404 pages. Um, but, uh, I mean, all in all, do you think this was a successful year for them or did you see them really stepping it up? Uh, I mean, I, again, I think in terms of what they wanted to accomplish, uh, I, I think they did. I mean, it's always every year I feel like it's, you know, it's the biggest sale day to date. It beats out, you know, the previous Cyber Monday and, and Black Friday combined, et cetera, et cetera. I think the most important thing is that they signed up more Prime members than ever. They're not sharing specifics, but that's really at the end of the day what they're trying to do with this is, is to get more consumers into that ecosystem. And uh, I, I mean, I think that that was something that we saw with the Prime Day concert. I feel like it skewed Younger, and I mean, it makes sense if you, as, as Gen Z starts getting more spending power, and you know, you want to. I feel like there's a, a bad analogy I could make, but I won't. You know, like, but like, if you get them when they're young, then you know, you have potentially customers for life, and uh, so I feel like that was, and they, they, you know, it was. They say that they they brought on more than ever. So in terms of that, it was a success. But I I was surprised by how uh, how how much of the conversation was about other retailers, which I really wasn't expecting. Um, Brandwatch, it's a social analytics firm ahead of time, had sent me some stats that said it was like 94% of the uh, online conversation was – about or focus on Amazon and 5% was Walmart and the rest was everybody else. So uh, the fact that uh, all of these other retailers, and there were many, there were more than 300, I think, at uh, Retail Me Not's last count. So they really did, uh, I mean, they they made themselves heard, I guess, which which was not something I was expecting. Yeah, it's almost like, it's, it's kind of a weird thing, right? It's becoming like a branded holiday um, you know, like Cyber Monday is Cyber Monday, and there's a lot of debate about how real it was when it, you know, for for many years. But Prime Day is like, I don't know, I can't think of any parallel to it where a brand creates this thing, and then it ends up being this huge benefit for its entire industry. And I'm sure it puts the pressure on them too. But, um, but is it going to be three days next year? It was two days this year, right? Is oh. it? Boy, I don't know. I, and I feel like I saw something about how its stock price went down because of – I don't know. I'm I'm not the best person to talk to about anything stock-related. So, I, I, I mean, I've, I feel like a lot of people think that Amazon invented this, but really, I, I don't know, a decade or two ago – or maybe three Christmas and July sales were not uncommon, and it's—I mean—it's retailers like Sears and Toys R Us, which maybe isn't um, a, a good vote of confidence, but they—they they seem to have sort of fallen out of favor. I don't know why. Maybe it was the association with Christmas. Maybe it was, you know, trying to battle against e-commerce. Uh, maybe it was that they had other 
other woes, but it, it just I feel like Amazon sort of realized because they were doing it for the very same reason. It's a slow sales period. You want to get rid of old stuff. You want to maybe <clears throat> get people excited about back to school shopping. And Amazon really took that, rebranded it. And I think now it's because Amazon is doing it. Uh, everybody else is is now kind of trying to capitalize on that as well. Lisa, thank you so much. I encourage okay. everyone to go back and check out Lisa Lacey's coverage of Prime Day and her coverage in general every day. Uh, <laughs> every day is Prime <laughs> Day for Lisa. Lacey. <laughs> um, but uh, Lisa does a spectacular job covering uh, e-commerce, retail, Amazon, uh, and the rise of Amazon into a very multi-tentacled, uh, you know, fascinating beast. Uh, but uh, thanks for giving us your recap on Prime Day. Uh, no, thanks for having me. All right. It's time to talk about our cover story, uh, which was a fascinating interview with a guy that if you're in any way involved with the ad industry, you've probably at least heard tale of, if not run across, Sir Martin Sorrell. All right. So, Ronan, um, the first remind us that just very quickly, uh, Martin Sorrell, uh, you know, he was kind of this. I always, I always struggle a bit to, to explain his his path through the industry. He kind of exploded, I believe, out of Saatchi and Saatchi, right, and then uh, and then ended up buying this complete unknown uh, wire basket and animal cage company <laughs> called WPP, uh, and uh, and turned WPP into a holding company that bought up. It became the largest holding company in all of advertising, uh, and then he he kind of unceremoniously uh, was was ousted. Um, you know, in the what was that about a year or a year ago now? But but tell us about you know how you kind of summarize when someone says who is this guy? Uh, how how do you describe like what makes him such a power player? Uh, well, I think the the phrase he's a, a doyen of the industry would probably would probably uh-huh. be at. Um, he, you know, he helped build it and mold the, you know, the advertising and media industry into what it is today. I mean, as you said, he, when he founded WPP in the mid eighties, he went on a near 30 year acquisition spree, built the WPP into the biggest whole co in the business right now. And, um, I couldn't even begin to tell you the amount of, um, you know, the, the sum total of the, uh, acquisitions that he made uh, in terms of uh, in terms of numbers or uh, you know cost for the industry he's just he's just been there done that and pretty much invented it so yeah there's nobody that's more experienced in the industry so what do we know about his ouster from WPP uh, you know there's obviously a lot of a lot of stuff swirling around there were controversies there were allegations but but what do we know about why he left and, and the conditions under which he left um, okay uh, are we gonna get the lawyers to listen in on this <laughs> yeah yeah we should, we should assume like what what do we know for sure <laughs> okay um, there are multiple allegations uh, there were uh, well, basically, look, I think in the run up to his ousting, regardless of, you know, was he, you know, was he pushed or did he jump? Um, it was stuttering in terms of its uh, financial performance. So maybe that prompted some people to maneuver things that uh, may have uh, engineered his exit from WPP. But um, I think what is what he has said on record it was that he left voluntarily, even though there were other um, investigations. And I, and I think, yeah. You know, if you're listening to this, you're probably aware as to the circumstances of them. Um, but yeah, he, he left voluntarily, but there were other, um, there were other, uh, yeah, machinations at play during that. Probably the most uh, diplomatic uh, way. 
I will say this. I was fascinated to see whether he would be at Cannes this year, what he would be like at Cannes this year. You know what I mean? And then uh, he was there, and he was there in a very visible way. Like, the dude was not shy. I mean, I don't know if Martin Sorrell's ever shied away from anything, but, like, he— he you know, would walk down the middle of the most crowded streets. He would hang out on the quasette, like right in front of God and everybody, just like, and just had this kind of aura of, I mean, I've seen him there every year, so it's not like it's weird to see him there, but his attitude was different. He just kind of had this like, like, are you looking at me? You know, this kind of like, what, you, you're going to say something? You're going to say it's weird that I'm here? You know? Really? <laughs> like just, yeah, it was just he kind of conveyed this sense of like, um, of just like, I don't even know how to describe it. Just someone that instead of shying away and being somewhat embarrassed after going through this whole, you know, grind, uh, he was just unapologetic about being back and being very central, you know, very, very visible at can. But a lot of that is because of the business that he has uh, started since leaving WPP and how quickly it has grown. Tell us about that. Yeah. So uh, S4 Capital, that's his new venture um during the conversation i had with him for the uh for the cover story it was interesting that how he would term it as a marketing services company and he didn't use the term agency or holding company which i found quite interesting i don't know if that was a deliberate omission from him but it's just what he was very much focusing on was how he is building something new and something different from the whole cause of say WPP and you know you know all the other big names so that's one thing I found notable to kind of dive into some of the specific questions you had asked him I think the of course the one that that everyone's really been wondering is his take on the holding company model that he he really kind of drove the creation of of creating WPP into this massive global uh, company that owned uh, more ad agencies than any other company. But now he's turned into one of the more vocal critics of that model. Uh, and uh, specifically, he seems to be telling you in the interview that uh, he thinks they've become too rigid uh, and that they are managing by spreadsheet uh, was his term. What, what does that mean? What does he mean by that? Um, yeah, I think he was referring to basically they've got a model and they've got KPIs to hit. It's something that they've been it's, it's a model they've been working towards for, say, 30 years or so now. And they don't know how to delineate from that. And as we have, you know, big tech such as Google, Facebook, Amazon, etc., uh, getting more and more involved in the advertising scene, and then we also have, uh, you know, the, the consultancies getting involved, such as Accenture. Uh, it's almost like the agencies are kind of stuck in a uh, pincer movement. And what he is attempting to do is build something new, which he believes can um, uh, operate in this sort of brave new world that we're all living in. Yeah, and to that to that point of of kind of all the pressures against the agency model, you ask him about work moving in house at brands. That's certainly something that keeps a lot of agency executives up at night. Uh, what, what's his take on on whether, and especially given the, his new model, where he's not. He's not creating an agency per se or a collection of agencies, but what was his perspective on on brands creating more in-house uh, teams for things that used to be the work uh, for agencies? Well, what he was talking about uh, during our conversation was how brands, they have been you know really straightened in terms of their marketing budgets and they have to justify quite a lot. And it would appear that uh, the average large-scale marketer 
can more justify their budget if it's in-house and their procurement departments can kind of see and box tick all their all their spend, etc. Whereas if it's uh, relayed off to a third-party agency, that might be a bit more difficult for them to justify internally. So basically with S4 Capital, he's trying to build uh, an outfit that can fit into that model. And it seems to be built around uh, sort of a, a three-pillared mantra that he continually uh, uses in public and that is faster better cheaper um he says it has said it multiple times during the interview so that's how he thinks he can fit into the needs of a marketer um i think the term he used was uh, you push on an open door hmm. the 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 other issue that i fascinated me that he brought up uh, just cuz the way he phrased this you know this is a guy who has been a a staunch uh, supporter of Britain staying in the European Union. He is he is not a Brexit guy. Um, but he did say that there is a marketing Brexit uh, happening uh, that, that he kind of seemed to be describing as a positive thing in the sense of this is uh, brands kind of reclaiming the destiny of, of their own data. And that basically for too long, tech companies, Google, Facebook, Amazon now, that had been owning the, all the data that used to belong to brands. And he felt that brands were really kind of pushing back and that he, I don't know, he seemed to be hopeful that that the tech companies wouldn't continue to be the, the only arbiters of, of consumer data and that brands might actually be able to, to reclaim that stuff. Yeah. Um, well, what he was talking about with the, the Brexit analogy was that during the Brexit campaign, the Leave uh, campaign, one of their marketing slogans was take back control. And he sees that if brands take you know, take more control of their first party data, they are taking back control. So they are not as reliant on, say, on a wall garden such as Amazon, Facebook or Google for the customer data. So that's kind of what he was referencing uh, when he uh, used the, the Brexit analogy. And yeah, basically what he was saying continually throughout our conversation was that, yeah, we can no longer trust Facebook, Amazon, Google, etc. Um, you need to take back control if you want to be, uh, you know, have 100% control of your marketing plan. Lisa, to bring you into it, this feels naive, I guess, to me. Like this, it feels like the tech companies are not going to relinquish something as valuable as data or, you know what I mean? Or that they're, they're not going to really support any idea of, of decentralizing, like if they can own the data, it seems like they're going to own it as long as they possibly can, right? Um, I would think so. I mean, I, I would. I mean, Amazon is is probably the the company I'm most familiar with, and this reminds me of um, my story in the magazine this this upcoming week is about body scans and how uh, I was talking to a former Amazon guy who. Uh, mentioned Amazon Go and how uh, he really doesn't see how they can possibly be making any money on that, and yet they want to scale it very rapidly, like to a thousand locations by the end of the year, next year, something like that. Don't quote me on it, but it's you know just a huge number of locations in a very short period of time. And so his suspicion is that uh, they are body scanning shoppers there, uh, and that it's that data that is the most valuable and that they're going to use in some other capacity, like perhaps to uh, 
to make that healthcare venture that has been long rumored happen, perhaps to uh, partner up with uh, insurance companies, something like that. But uh, but the or lend or sell the technology to to other places. But the data itself, he said, Amazon is gonna hold on to that. Like, or is it grim death? Is that the phrase <laughs> where you, you're not gonna let it go? So, um, at least in terms of getting, I mean, and that's the whole issue uh, in the e. European Commission uh, investigation right now, or, or that's about to, to kick off, is uh, is that data that Amazon has and, and uses to its own advantage. So for Amazon, anyway, like I, I don't I don't see them parting with it easily. Well, it's and it was interesting recently when we saw a patent come through for a new, I believe, a Nike shoe that w- had smart technology built into it, which you're like, okay, you know, wearable tech, that's not a new trend. But in the patent, it specifically called out the shoe's ability not just to track your own movements and whatever to, you know, sync up with apps or your watch or whatever, uh, but it's specifically to collect data that could be used to better target advertising at you. <laughs> and it was just like, wow, the, the you know, just that that's where, that's where this technology goes right away now is when brands have the ability uh, to to generate their own data and not be beholden to someone else's uh, data, they're going to do some, they're going to do whatever it takes. <laughs> but there's also the partnerships, like uh, the Washington Post tech columnist, I think his name is Jeffrey Fowler. He had a, a very interesting column on May 6th, which I remember because it's my son's birthday, uh, about how he read the transcripts of everything that Alexa uh, had on his household. And he had this brilliant line about, it was something about, some, I, I don't want to quote it. I will mess it up. But how it would make somebody who was used to collecting a lot of data blush and then realizing with all of these other devices in his house who have agreements with Amazon that it's uh, that, that data is being shared with Amazon. And so really Amazon can sort of track your every move kind of a thing was, was the point of that column. And uh, it just – Something to think about the next time you uh, you buy a smart device for your home. Ronan, uh, where did you net out in your in your conversation with Martin Sorrell? I don't know if in the I wasn't around in the early '80s, at least in advertising. Um, the uh, but so I don't know what people thought he might accomplish when he left Saatchi and kind of went off to pursue his ambitions by buying up, you know, again a basket company and turning it into this behemoth. Uh, but obviously, he did become the most powerful man in advertising. What's your take now on is he going to even eclipse his own previous, uh, you know, levels of accomplishment with WPP? Is he a lion in winter? You know, where, where is he in the big in the the arc of of the Sir Martin Sorrell story here? Um, well, I think uh, to eclipse what he built with WPP, that would take some doing. I mean, he had a good 30-year-plus run. S4 Capital's only been going a year, and um, let's face it, he is 74 years of age. So that would take something if he uh, was able to surpass WPP. But I think what the ambition is, is to build something that is fit for now, and he can exit it at a time whenever it is just running smooth it's not having the legacy issues that say a wpp and the other holding companies are going through right now so that would be my own personal take is that he just seemed to you know want to show that he could do it again and that Mm. 
Uh, he, you know, during the early part of our conversation, not that it's in the article, he was mentioning how, yeah, I could have just sat on some boards, you know, effectively put my feet up, go hit the golf course or whatever. But I just think he's just got something a bit more in him. You know, he's a, he's a man with a lot of energy. Yes. Well, thank you so much for sharing your conversation. Encourage everyone to check out Ronan Shields' uh, cover story on Adweek on adweek.com in the print magazine. You can't miss it. It's an amazing cover. It's one of my favorite covers we've had, which is saying something we've had some really stellar covers lately. Uh, but, uh, but man, this, <laughs> this week's close-up of Martin Sorrell was, uh, whew, that was a, that's a good one. Uh, Kamiko, thank you so much, as always, for, uh, for making time for the podcast. Absolutely. Always happy to be here. Lisa, as, as always, too, thank you for sharing your insights on Amazon, on uh, retail, and uh, everything in between. Uh, it's, it, was, it was fascinating. And I have to say, like, having you as via Slack, you know, to be able to just ping constantly about how I should, <laughs> like, what my battle plan should be for Prime Day was uh, just invaluable. So thank you for that, and thank you for coming on the show. Happy to help. And, and again, thanks for, for bringing me back. All right, Ronan, we'll have to get you back. It was great to uh, pipe you in from Ireland, and uh, we'll have you back on soon. Our theme music is by Home. Uh, this week's episode was produced by Chris Ahrens with production assistance from Nick Gardner and edited by Lane McGibney. Thank you to everyone involved. Uh, don't forget, you can drop us an email at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. And we will be, uh, we'll be back next week. 